Hello and welcome to Play to Find Out, the Dungeon World discussion podcast from the Dungeon World Discord. I'm Arthur, or Art Projects, one of your co-hosts. And my name is Eamon, or Voidlight, your other co-host. Now, we've got a fun show for you tonight, talking about that most dangerous of GM experience, the social encounter. But before we get into that, I'd like to bring you a highlight from one of my recent games. A few weekends ago, I had my in-person Dungeon World group over, and we, because it was a subset of the usual group, decided to play a side story with some characters in common, some new characters. And one of the players rolled up a Barbarian, which is a fun class that I don't get to see very often in my game, so I was really excited about that. And the core premise from the Barbarian's perspective was that the river that his society relied on had dried up, so he needed to go across the mountain range that separated his area from the rest of the world and figure out why it was that the river was drying up. So he did, and he found a dam. Now, the other player in the group was the druid. And the druid and the barbarian conspired to bring down the dam. And the way that they actually did it, I really enjoyed because it was a fun, non-traditional use of druid powers to do a cool thing, which was turn into a mole, dig into the big old concrete dam, and destroy it from the inside. Which was a fun sort of opportunity for a player to really lean into the skills of their class in a way that I wasn't really expecting. So that was a highlight from my recent game of Dungeon World. I like when you get to see the druid's animal powers become well-suited to a given situation. Uh, so I definitely like that, especially in a non-combat role. Absolutely. I, I'm trying to think of a way that a mole would be viable in combat, and while they are ample, I like the idea of a mole as just a force of wanton destruction of property <laughs> Almost as much as I like any druid violence in my game. Well, the, the classic uh, fantasy trope is to just attach the word dire in front of any animal, and then it's a combat foe. <laughs> oh, isn't that the truth? Dire moles. Yes. Instinct. To burrow inside. <laughs> Chest burst is one of their moves. Oh, for sure. Well, with that in mind, let's jump ahead to our adventure workshop. Today we're talking about... Realistic social situations in play. All right, so let's get started. We're going to start with the big category of fantastic social situation, which is, of course, the party, the carousal, the festival, the opportunity where lots and lots of people get together to celebrate. Now, there are a lot of different things you can do at a party. Of course, there's the classic pull-off-a-heist while all those socialites are downstairs. There's the make-a-connection-with-a-possible-patron. All manner of other stuff. What other, uh, what other party events do we have? What do we use in our games? I have had uh, situations where getting to have FaceTime with someone in public can only be happen at the party, whether because this person is elusive and they only show up at the party or because um, the party is like cover so that your meeting with this person will be inconspicuous because there are so many other people around sort of um, hiding in the noise, so to speak. So that often the stereotypical thing is like an assassination could happen there because the, the king's out and about, you know, he's not uh, stuffed up in his castle or that you can uh, meet with someone 
who otherwise um, would never like show their face in public because it's like a masquerade or something. But you happen to know like who they are amongst the crowd, that that sort of thing. I've seen I've seen played with in games. For sure. So one thing that I think is really great about a party, of course, is that you get an opportunity for lots and lots of people to be there, which is simultaneously something that's really fun to play in as a player and difficult to plan for as a GM. So when we when you have a party in one of your games, Eamon, what do you do? How do you approach preparing for that? So if I know this is going to happen ahead of time, um, or at least have some inkling that it could, that there's a high population here, um, I try to set up things that will leverage um, the abilities of Dungeon World as a system to deal with that. Maybe a custom move. A custom move, like when you navigate the crowd, you know, something, such and such will happen. Or when you uh, try to get the attention of the masses, like if someone's going to get up and try to a bard might do a performance, or a paladin might command or decry someone publicly. Uh, the the cleric might start to preach and try to like sway the crowd to some dramatic action, that sort of thing. Um, some of the playbooks have moves that interact with large groups of people. Um, the the emulator has has things about spreading dangerous ideas and that sort of thing. That like a crowd seems a good way to get that having immediate effect. Um, that players will often try to leverage. But custom moves are also good if you just want to smooth over the challenge of them saying, I sprint after this guy. And you're like, well, there's a million people all in the way. But cool. if we have a custom move set up, it, we talked about um, a couple weeks ago how it sets up expectations about how the situation will go. So there's it, it's not confusing when it comes up. Yeah, I love the idea of an undertake a perilous journey equivalent specific to parties where the perilous journey is just getting across the room to the person you need to talk to without disturbing somebody else along the way. Or getting distracted. Yeah. yeah. If you make it there on time, you also pick up an hors d'oeuvre as you go. <laughs> That's the quartermaster's rule. Quartermaster is like slapping hands, being like, not yet. You've already no. eaten. Yes, no crumbs in the mouth when we meet Lord Farthing. <laughs> yeah. All right. Cool. So it sounds like we've got sort of a general approach to parties nailed down. So what I'd like to do is just kind of pitch a couple of party options and maybe talk a little bit about some of the people we might find there. So, of course, there's the ball, which is the classic fancy get all the lords and ladies and others into the one room and have them all mingling and planning and scheming and conspiring, whatever it happens to be. Um, and then, of course, some of the things you can do there. Well. A group of PCs, as we talked about earlier, might be meeting someone there for the first time or making a connection to someone or possibly trying to find somebody who's there. Then, of course, there's always the possibility that an interloper will enter into this ball and cause a disturbance, an ample opportunity for a fighter or someone else to set them straight. So I don't know. What, what, other, what other things can we do with a ball? We've got uh, we've kind of covered a lot of these already, I feel like, but. I just want to make sure we really get all the possibilities because I'm going to a ball on Friday and I want to be prepared. In real life? In real life, yeah. I see. That's why this well, is on the brain. I've got a ball coming up. I had to rent a tuxedo. Goodness me, that sounds serious. It um, is. That, that, that had to rent a tuxedo triggers something that I was wanting to say, which was that uh, at any social situation... Uh, and this holds true for within games and should be paid attention to as the GM, there are rules at play. There are social rules. And um, the person at uh, or person or persons in that situation that have the best grasp of the rules will hold control. 
Um, and sometimes the rules are fairly, um, subtle. Um, for example, like there are, there are certain ways you conduct yourself at certain types of parties from how you speak to how you dress to how you move and when to which activities you can undertake and which activities you must be invited to undertake and that sort of thing. And, um, I, I really like the idea of the PCs having imperfect knowledge of those things mm-hmm. and trying to adapt, uh, to cover the gaps. Um, for example, they might be a party and not know why it is being held or there, um, may be some potentially gruesome or otherwise disturbing thing that is uh, part of the party's course of events that will slowly become revealed. Yes, it um, is totally normal to spit roast a centaur over a big fire pit in the middle of this ball. Yes, and That's everyone is disturbingly casual it. about it, that sort of thing. Yes. Or perhaps no, like the it. king can only be spoken to by those wearing purple hats, and there's a specific way that those hats are doled out or, or yes. such and such. Oh, I love that. And even something as simple as asking somebody to dance is a cultural tradition that's just riddled with opportunity for a six minus result to go horribly awry. Right. And what does it mean to ask someone to dance? Like, is, is it is that it or is that a prelude to something else like yes. th- that is? Is it a marriage y- proposal? Right. You ask yeah. The wrong person. <laughs> yeah, that that would be very amusing in fiction. You, you socially are in over your head very quickly. So as a, as the GM, um, you, the impetus is not necessarily entirely on you to create all those things. Dungeon World is a blessedly an open table conversation. And so being able to explore that social space with your players, um, is very delightful. I yes, think that you, you ask a young games, lord to dance and he looks at you aghast. Yes. And then, well, what does that mean? What, uh, what I, I like that opportunity to just say, you ask the young lord to dance, you roll a six minus. Well, what does the prince take from this, uh, this invitation? How does he react and get let the players give you the, you know, just put up a flag and say, hey, this is what I want to get out of the situation now that it's going hilariously wrong. So that's There's, kind of, um, sorry, go for it. I was going to say, I've seen used uh, in various ways, the, your action works too well in a way that you weren't attending. Yeah. Like six minus, especially in social situations where this person is now infatuated with you. Try to uh, tactfully detach yourself without causing uh, retribution, right? Then now you have a royalty who, who is infatuated in you. And if you snub them, then you could find your head on the chopping blocks. Sort of For situation. sure. Cool. So it sounds like we've got the ball under control. Let's move on to the next dangerous situation. The festival. Now, I think a festival is different from a ball for a few reasons. One, longer time span, larger area. Uh, and then, of course, the the people that are attending a festival tend to be a much wider social strata than those who are just attending a ball. You know, you have sort of the nature of a festival is everyone gets together, regardless of class or race or position in the social structures of the space. So, of course, you've got sort of a different result. More opportunities for thievery, you know, more danger when you leave your your purse unattended. What else? They're typically outdoor. Um, oh, totally. Undertakings. Additionally, they're often tied into some sort of uh, in-fiction calendar. But this is like a seasonal festival or it is a festival to celebrate a specific event and, and those sorts of things, which balls also can be, but festivals have somewhat stronger ties to. Additionally, they are things that commerce sometimes happens within, whereas it's not as strongly associated with balls where there can be... Um, special things that are being sold and and bought at this festival that that wouldn't be otherwise um like markets come into play at festivals in my experience often um 
what else? Yeah, plenty of uh, of vendors hawking wares of dubious quality or at hiked prices. With uh, you know, I I was at a Renaissance fair over the weekend, and there was some stuff there that was hilariously overpriced, or that you couldn't buy anywhere else, right? Or that oh, like, for sure, not not as easily, right? Like yeah. like finding um, someone selling uh, like leather gauntlets and damascus steel swords like back to back like that that doesn't happen to other places other than yeah. renaissance fairs like you have to go to specific online vendors that sort of yeah. thing even a cloak is something that you can get easily at a ren fair but not very easily on any other venue so think, what kind and of that's thing? a product of our modern culture yeah but like in your fantasy setting there might be some things that legitimately can only be got at certain festivals right mm-hmm. like if there's a festival of flowers right or it's like the the great autumnal like floral festival because like all the flowers are going to die in the winter so like people are selling them or something like that maybe there are rare flowers that are all, are all together in one place suddenly which would take a lot of hunting down to find otherwise mm-hmm. and that could be important for a ritual or for um, a specific uh, appeasing someone with a very refined tastes or that sort of thing yeah, for sure. And speaking of rituals, that's sort of the third party that I've highlighted as things to talk about today. The ritual, not in the wizard sense, but in the group of people solemnly coming together to accomplish some ethereal aim is also something of a party situation as well. Although oftentimes with a slightly more dire tilt. I'm thinking, of course, of the Nicol- uh, the, the Nicholas Cage classic, The Wicker Man. I don't know if you've seen that, Eamon. Have you? I'm familiar with The Wicker Man uh, as like a social touchstone, but I don't think I've seen the specific oh my. piece of media. It's quite a film. I'm not going to spoil it, but the the drama of the of the movie sort of centers around an island with an odd culture and an odd religious tradition. And that odd religious tradition is a really good touchstone for creating a place that's just a little bit off kilter, where there's a sinister undertone to the shared beliefs and the shared context of everybody there. So if your town is on the verge of a big ritual, maybe it's the harvest sacrifice or it's the great reaping of fertility or whatever it happens to be, that's a really good opportunity to let your PCs be fish out of water and really give them something dangerous to to sink their teeth into, so to speak. So let's talk rituals. What distinguishes a ritual, do you think, from these other party options? The ritual is directed. Um, when you were describing it, I was thinking of as balls and festivals are held for certain reasons, but rituals um, are held for even more specific ones and they typically have a subject like it's some it's being done for or upon someone where the ball could be more open and the festival can be more open like we're all in this together type of thing um things like a wedding could be considered a ritual right like it's technically a party but there's a specific ceremony taking place that is the nexus of that and there is the two people that i guess or more um that, that you could have um, in that context that are primarily the focus of the event, right? They're, they're, the, they're the subjects, so to speak. And there are very other, various other things um, with religious uh, connotations or not that could be considered um, rituals, like different um, familial events that this is happening because someone is reaching some sort of uh, threshold, like in their, in their age or in their society that triggers this special party needs to happen to commemorate it. That is a that I would consider ritual. That's what I was thinking of when you were first explaining that. 
Nice. There's also like bar mitzvahs and that type of thing. You yes. Know? And I think thinking about rituals from my own life, there's often a couple of parts to it. There's the solemn observation of the ritual itself. And then usually there's an after event where people unwind from the ritual experience and it ends up being more of a party, more of a festival, um, more in common with the previous two. Now, the other thing about a ritual, and I think we touched on this a little bit, is this idea of very codified behavior. And that extends to every piece of it. Processions that are organized in a certain way, particular clothing, particular dances being done. So when you have your PCs there for a ritual that is unfamiliar to them, how how do we approach that? What's a what are some good some good GM moves to keep in mind when that comes up? I think that drawing unwanted attention um, has a lot more play in these sorts of situations. And the moves that have that uh, in there, like like the wizard spellcasting move and those sorts of things, uh, become a lot different in how they operate at the table when you're in a party situation. Because draw unwanted attention can carry more weight to it. And sometimes the players uh, will, will choose that because they think it's a soft option. Like if they're in a dungeon and they just killed everyone in the room and the spell that they just used to like wipe out the last person, they're like, sure, I'll draw unwanted attention because from who? You know, there's no one here. And that ends up being something remote, right? That like someone spies you from like far away or like uh, a demon takes notice of you and like eventually that might come around. But in a party, if you draw unwanted attention, there could be dozens of people right there that are now like looking at you and that could turn into a mob very quickly, you know, and that that's the sort of thing that's at, at the forefront of people's minds. So that, totally. that's where my mind goes when you're talking about GM moves. Yeah. And then you've also got some stuff like I think use up their resources is a really fertile ground for a ritual especially a ritual where the like context is a little bit unfamiliar to the PCs. In my head, I'm immediately jumping to the, you know, oh, uh, uh, a young girl dances by you and grabs your grabs a bottle from your belt and tosses it into her basket amongst a variety of other small food and drink items. You know, that that's this great opportunity to you know, to, to use a relatively hard move, you know, use up the resources is typically a little on the harder side of the spectrum. But in a context where the reaction isn't just, oh, I snatch it back, or maybe it is, I snatch it back, and then you can dive into the fiction from there. And then, of course, separate them. If your ritual is large scale, lots of people moving around lots of places, it's a great opportunity to have one PC swept up into the Maypole dance wall. The second PC is carried off to the mud pit for the summary, for the summary dunking, whatever it happens to be. <laughs> Or one PC ends up on stage and the other is in horror trying to figure out how to extricate them from that. Yes. Yes. Something this... that's inescapably public, mm -hmm. I think, is is very um that that is something that mm -hmm. you can play with in parties. All hail the Autumn King, who is of course the barbarian from before. Oh, that's yeah. Boy, I now I need to have one of these like big festival ritual mashups in in a, in a game. This this has given me so many ideas. But Let's jump away from parties for a second and talk just quickly about two other social situations that I think we should be prepared for as GMs. There's the town hall meeting and the special invitation. And these are a couple of scenarios that I've used in games before, especially as a way to kick, kick things off. The town hall meeting is a great opportunity to put a bunch of important people in one place and then have them disagree with one another and let the PCs be a part of that discussion and that disagreement. It's a great way to kickstart an adventure, something to the tune of, oh, the... There have been raids, and we need to figure out whether we're going to stand and fight or reinforce the wall or what. And then there's the other version of it, which is, you know, 
how are we going to get the money together to pay these adventurers to deal with our problem for us? Um, and making that situation vibrant and it, it really comes down to sort of the voices that you're able to bring to that meeting, the different people and their different opinions and perspectives and wants. I think this is very fertile social ground as well. And I would nest under the sort of super topic of town hall meeting um, things like debate or things like a trial, which are very, um, very rich so uh, social context that we can find a lot of play with uh, in adventuring scenarios. Um, I've whether the PCs are the subject of that or not, right? Like maybe there's a debate that the PCs are high, uh, heavily concerned in because the debate is like, should we um, allow these people to interfere with our business mm-hmm. or not? And the PCs are sort of advocating for themselves. Or maybe the PCs are called in to arbitrate something, right? Like they're the swing vote um, in something. Mm-hmm. Like we we talked about when we touched on a spell called Catherine in a picture of this several weeks ago, that uh, that's a way to, to show that the PCs have real world agency. Like there, there could be a debate um, or a trial about should we allow this big thing to exist or not, right? In the, in that scenario, it was human summoning. And if the PCs are a small group of dedicated individuals that can have their voice heard, they can cause lasting change in the campaign setting. Um, and often uh, games that um, are in the habit of having that mainly be in the form of killing something can find some real uh, life here in this in this topic. If that's not something that your group has really explored, if like the most lasting change that your PCs have ever uh, affected is by like making a certain monster not be alive anymore, uh, being able to have them affect social change might be really really cool. Yeah, there's also the my cousin Vinny option. I don't know if you've seen my cousin Vinny, but the basic premise of this great Joe Pesci film is that two boys are taken into custody are arrested because they are suspected of a very heinous crime and then you know it, it, it's an insular community in which they are outsiders and in order to save their bacon they call in another interloper another outsider that's a really great place for pcs to be when it comes to this town hall meeting someone who's there to advocate passionately on the behalf of someone who is at the mercy of the community uh, but also as outsiders themselves having to sort of break into that social structure. So that's the town hall. Let's talk talk very quickly about the last of this uh, of this set, which is the special invitation. This one is probably the easiest adventure starter that I have in my toolbox, which is you've been summoned by uh, the great lady of the land for she has a quest for you to undertake. She wants this particular dagger for reasons unknown and in that situation it's usually the party it's the person who invited them and a handful of his or her lackeys and then who knows what else might transpire from there it's a great opportunity to either take the job and then be betrayed later to take the job and then continue taking jobs for this person as the game goes on it's just a good structural piece this is one where uh, a lot of the potential is there to subvert stereotypes and to uh, and su- to subvert cliches mm-hmm. because this is the most common uh, social interaction. Uh, some games that um, have almost no social interactions will have sometimes just this. Yeah. You know, like at the very end, you have like a little like chat with the orc warlord before you fight, or like at the very beginning, you have a chat with the king before you just go out into the wilderness. Yeah. And um, those are opportunities for um, the rugs to be swept out from under the pcs right if this they felt this is going to be a simple like go do this and they leave you know and it's actually more of a back and forth kind of engagement or something something else 
Yeah. And it's also something where the most benign invitation you can have, someone you trust has invited you someplace, or someone that you don't know particularly well but just appears to generically be a quest giver, can become so much more memorable in an instant if, for instance, the PCs have even the slightest bit of resistance and the person hosting them reacts way out of proportion with what the PCs are doing, that's a really memorable encounter because you think back on it and think, huh, why did that dwarf react so strongly when we asked for two extra gold pieces? Isn't he insanely wealthy? That sort of thing. It's a really... When you have that opportunity, there are so many places you can go with it. And also... Sorry. Yeah, well, the, this one last detail, which is the nice thing about a special invitation is that you don't have to play two NPCs talking to one another very much. A lot of these other situations involve NPC interactions that the players may observe. But this one is very strongly GM talking to PCs, which is, I think, the way I like to play in general. I don't like my NPCs to talk to one another and have the spotlight for too long. Yeah, especially if that's at a risk of becoming static. But um, when the PCs are the, are the subject of the action is what we want to see on, on screen, especially in the social situations. Um, I was going to ask if you've ever played the Sprawl. I have. I've definitely... I, I love the Sprawl. I think it's a really cool system. Not perfect, but very cool. So in, in the Sprawl, for those who don't know, it's a PBTA powered by the Apocalypse uh, cyberpunk game. But because the premise of that game is the general flow is that you're getting missions, doing them, and at the end, meeting back up with your employer to like get paid for the mission, there are these built-in social situations that are always going to happen because it's mission-structured, right? Like you're, you're going to get a job, right? Mm-hmm. And so there are special moves for getting the job and then getting paid. And those are rules that arbitrate social situations that are really interesting because... Um, you basically make this sort of role for that uh, is representing your ba- ability to have the um, the know-how and the social prowess to have this situation go down on your terms. And especially for the getting paid one, the different options that you have to sort of pick from, especially on the seven to nine results, are like uh, you don't get uh, shortchanged. You yeah. figure out the identity of who your employer is. Your employer um, doesn't double cross you. Right. This isn't a setup. And you're not followed, like different things like that. So especially if you're thinking of um, running a, a fantasy game that is mission-oriented in any mm-hmm. sense, maybe your PCs are a group of bounty hunters, or maybe they're taking contract work, or they're all monster hunters, or they're going to be doing something that is has a series of missions. Having something to arbitrate that and giving some thought to how that goes down can, first of all, quicken your game, because a lot of people get bogged down in the, just the initial conversation of like just chatting ad infinitum with the king when really the point of that situation was just get the task get out there i one one quick note before we um move on to meta talk uh, just for adventure purposes is know when to avoid social situations um if this if they the story wouldn't benefit from them mm-hmm. in the example that i was giving where maybe you are playing a game that's much more of a dungeon calling hack and slash thing but you want to start off with a summons from the king just because it would add weight for one reason or another. If you want, you can hard frame away from that by having it having already happened and be like, you stand there at the mouth of the dungeon with the, the, the letter from the yeah. king or in the your king's hands, words detailing. echoing in your ears. Yeah. Or, or it's just a quick flashback that is, um, mm-hmm. that is narrated. And then in the present, we are already at the scene, right? Or it's just a, a letter that, that summarizes uh, the interaction that had happened previously, yeah. you know? One thing I like about games with flashbacks is that it lets you hard frame away, but then still return to it in play if you need to. 
Um, we'll, we'll be talking a little bit later in the episode about Blaze in the Dark, which has a flashback mechanic encoded into the core part of the rules. And so I, I have extended that into Dungeon World games explicitly because I want to hard frame away from something and then give my players an opportunity to go back to it if there's more detail that we need. Yeah, I've seen, I have seen this used in Dungeon World too. So, yeah. um, this isn't just theoretical, like flashbacks do work and yes. tend to great effect. And they should be used. They're great. But with that in mind, speaking of things that should be used to great effect, it's time for Meta Talk. So if you don't mind, Arthur, in the meta talk section, I'd like to drill down a little deeper instead of talking about um, social situations as sort of adventure locations and fronts, um, talking about them as um, granular things that happen around the table. I, I'm thinking specifically of the PC is talking to an NPC and you're just trying to role play that um, because some GMs, this is the most intimidating part. They're having to ad lib dialogue, right? They're having to sit there and think of what does this imaginary person say in in response to this person. Um, do you have any initial thoughts there? Oh boy, do I. So I think I've mentioned on the show, but in case I haven't, I'll say it out loud. I have, for the past couple of months, been taking improv lessons as, in part, an opportunity to develop some of these skills that I use as as a GM in a little bit more detail. And one of the things that we start with as far as playing characters on stage in that class is come up with one thing and how you feel about it and let everything else be discovered from there. And I think that there is that that is a really good way to be ready to improvise a character's dialogue, improvise their opinions, improvise their desires, as if you just start from one thing. You know, I'm Barry Blockhead, and I love mining. Why do I love mining? And then from there, you, you, you build out the answer to that question. Well, I love mining because when I was just a kid, my uncle, who was also a miner, came up from the tunnels one day and gave me a small gemstone that he found down there. And he said, these mines are full of treasure, and someday you're going to get an opportunity to take some too. And then that just sort of builds out more and more. Well, what was that treasure? It was a gemstone. Where Do I still have it? Yes, it's embedded into my notebook that is all just from I am Barry Blockhead and I like this thing. I hate this thing. I don't particularly want to be here. Whatever it happens to be, one emotional decision is all you need to get to so much depth. In a given interaction where the PC is um, talking to an NPC, um, I find that for myself, um, a similar principle of having one thing in mind uh, not just to characterize them, but to keep the conversation to a tight arc. It's just what is it? What are they trying to gain? Like, what's their angle? And if that's not clear, then the conversation is going to be unfocused and difficult to role play. Um, uh, a lot of times, um, like I'm thinking of the social uh, interaction that we had when we had Willem Wilmet, the bard uh, character that you were playing in our uh, call-in show, mm -hmm. was talking to uh, Malgore. And I didn't know that was going to be a social situation necessarily, um, but I had to think of what this person wants, right? And um, ultimately, it was just to uh, to be a good Hellmite, right? Like they, they just wanted to like maintain and uphold their station, which in, entailed not letting you um, not letting you pass um, unless it was on their terms. Yeah. And so, like all of your questions were trying to impress upon you that that sort of thing, right? Yep. 
yeah, maintain the status quo is a really good want as long as there's a particular path that that character will take to get to the status quo or to get back to it. And I think a lot of great villains are either people who are obsessed with maintaining the status quo. We see that in real life all the time. Um, and also people for whom we've gotten so far off the status quo that they are completely collapsing and 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 basically incapable of functioning anymore because the social order that they're used to has broken down so much. And I think yeah, Malgor... Their perceived status quo needs to yeah. be up upheld. Malgor was definitely a character that, from my perspective, wanted to keep the status quo right where it was and maintain his power in that situation uh, and could, was empowered to do so by the fact that he was a Hell Knight with a big old notched sword and a bunch of sulfur and stuff. In... In the case of that conversation as well, um, sometimes how does the PC talk is a, is a question. Mm. And a lot of people, um, especially if they're new to role-playing games, their conception of what a good GM is is just someone who is entertaining to hear speak as a character, right? Yes. Um, the performative elements are the, are the most surface level of, of our hobby sometimes. Mm. So I think it would be fit as a spit uh, or to um, spend a little time talking about that. Like, how do you have a good tick that like makes one PC different than another? How do you uh, have a sort of a set of voices that you can like rotate between totally. that aren't going to make everyone feel stagnant. Yeah. I suck at maintaining a consistent character voice. Even if it's just one character, I will fly through five or six different options. It's one of the things I'm trying to practice and get better at. But here are a couple of things that I find are useful. Naturally, I'm a very quick talker. So if I want to immediately throw a wrench in that, slow down, lower your voice, be calming is a really good vocal affectation to put on. It's very easy for me to jump into because it's different, it's distinct from what I typically do. And I can keep that energy going by really thinking about how I'm just talking slowly. I'm channeling Mufasa from The Lion King. All this will be yours one day. So that's one option. And then, of course, you can go in and you can change some of the, some of the consonant sounds that you're using you know, stuff some uh, some paper towels in your mouth and uh, just talk like that for a little bit and see how that uh, how that feels for you. Um, there are a couple of different consonant sounds that are really easy to to mess with. Uh, there's of course the classic transposing W's and V's so that uh, you're sounding very uh, very different from from what you usually would. Uh, and that's a great way to sort of slip into something that approximates an accent without sort of offensively becoming an accent so transposing consonants is a great way to to give yourself a vocal affectation so those are a couple of vocal affectations that i'll usually lean on for better or for worse what about you Eamon? i think it's interesting that you mentioned accents because they're often some of the hardest to pull off um but people always jump to that right away right um, oh yeah and it also it it, it it can make your world kind of chaotic like uh and also uh, have unnecessary connotations, right? Mm -hmm. That these are all things that are product of complex real world uh, factors and just throwing them into your game uh, doesn't always make sense, right? Yeah. Like why, why do dwarves sound Scottish? Yeah, it's that don't, and that don't lean into the dwarf sound Scottish thing just because a Scottish accent is hard to sustain and it's hard to have five different Scottish accents for five different dwarves. I've tried, yeah, it's it, not good. It makes things sound samey. Like um, it can be done, right? Especially if your game is taking place in a real world or a real world derived setting like in a cyberpunk setting yeah. this guy might be actually russian right mm -hmm. and in that case when you actually have russian accent it makes that character interesting right yeah. but 
out outside of that in a fantasy game, I, I wouldn't lean on that, right? Like having someone sound Slavic just because they're from the north in your world, like, mm-hmm. I don't know, it, just, just examine that choice a little more. But you touched on a lot of good stuff that there are a lot of things you can do with your voice to distinguish a character that are a lot easier than accents and also a lot more meaningful. Um, one that I wanted to highlight, highlight was um, a lot of us will find ourselves trying to portray characters of the opposite gender. Um, like if you're a GM, you're going to have to play a female character at, probably at some point, right? Yeah, I hope so. Um, or, or, or yeah, hope if you're doing your job, probably, right? Or vice versa, right? If you're a, a female GM playing a male character and just changing the, um, the, um, the softness or the harshness of your voice ever so slightly can give that connotation without it becoming distracting. Mm-hmm. Um, no one likes to see necessarily, unless it's used for comic effect um, and not don't play it this way all the time. But if you're playing a woman um, as a man, you don't have to be having a high voice all the time because this is not how women talk, right? Um, but if the if your voice is softened ever so slightly, it's a good way to signal that the, the person that is talking is a female character. Mm-hmm. They want something very particular from you. I That's something that uh, I heard first from Jason Cordova from the Gauntlet community, and I thought is used to good effect because it's a good way to keep straight. Like when I hear him using that voice, I'm like, okay, he's talking in persona of the female character present, mm. and there are several other characters, even if that wouldn't otherwise be explicit. Um, other than that, different verbal, especially for characters that they are going to be um, primarily used in social situations, and you want to distinguish them by how they they talk um and specifically how they talk uh, aside from the things that they want uh, coming up with the, that very specific tick like maybe this person every time they end a sentence it kind of sounds like a question a, a little bit of uh up talk i can't do up talk i uh, i can't do it i my brain doesn't I, <laughs> jump to it i don't know why yeah and these these are things that um you can just sort of develop yourself and uh how how your own sort of repertoire of um, like ticks operates will be your sort of voice as a yeah. GM in um, pun intended yeah. in a lot of ways. So here's another way to do, to do distinct voicings, not just voices, but one way to make it clear that a particular character has a particular way of speaking is also to change who they're speaking to. I'm a big fan of the king whose every sentence is a proclamation to all and everyone here is listening. Yes, even you in the very back, you with the small horns and the little little, the little dagger, and uh, this magnanimous voice that speaks to everybody, or alternately the vizier whose entire speaking is in whispers to the king that the king then repeats. These are two options that don't require a special voice. They just require you to say the vizier whispers into the king's ear and the king repeats. Just another option. Or- if the character is always uh, in, in, unsure of themselves and this, their sentences are often involving rhetorical questions where they're just sort of like seeking approval recognition, like they always end a sentence being like, y- you know what I'm saying? Uh, everybody, everybody understands that, right? Right, yeah, guys? Right? Everybody like, follows me. I, 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 I do believe I'm, I'm the one who's, who's got the right opinions here. Does everybody? Yeah, that, that like talking to people, not just talking and letting people respond to it is a great way to contextualize those interactions a little bit more clearly um npcs that are designed to push against certain pcs are really cool too oh yeah um especially when they call them out like you might have a character that 
like he he fixates on a certain member of the party. He's like, you look like a wizard type. You know, don't you have some kind of spell to fix this? That sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And then it calls out, like someone took notice that this character is a spellcaster, right? Or maybe the fact that a certain character is a ranger, right? Or they might be very uncomfortable by the presence of their animal companion. Like this is uh, the principle of showing a weakness of their class or or um, of pushing up against like their specific, um, what they chose um, is always almost always going to be very well received by the players totally. because it's highlighting the cool things about them that they want to see yeah. on screen it's right? all about listening and it's also um unique right like that that interaction wouldn't be possible with, with a different pc so it doesn't seem like yeah. they're just being dropped into like they're the like the mmo scenario yeah. of it's not a fill in the, the millionth person yeah yeah exactly right. it's it's site specific specific to what you have before you at the table which is some role playing one of role playing's main strengths and hitting that will make a special experience there was some discussion uh, go ahead uh, on the discord recently about D pre-written modules being like a novel that you shove your pcs into and if they leave the novel then you have to put them back into the novel and i don't think that's true for all pre-written modules but i think it is something where if you just think a little bit about a way to make your PCs heard, it completely breaks that wide open. Might, oh, yeah. You know, why do they react to orcs this way? Well, it's because this orc that came through here years and years ago that maybe was also a PC of, a, of this group from a previous campaign uh, behaved a certain way. There, it, one little detail that shows that you're listening to your players is just means so much. Um, and if a, if an NPC is the one who's bringing that detail to the forefront, they're going to remember that NPC forever. I would like to talk about parlay because um, when we are talking about Dungeon World in particular and looking at what sort of social tools and frameworks it gives us, parlay is basically the main one. Like that's that's yes. what we have to work with. Aside from bonds, when we're talking about inter PC mm-hmm. stuff. When talking about PC on NPC interactions, um, parlay is the meat and potatoes. The so, meat and potatoes, um, indeed. So let's let's talk. Jump to the. Uh, let's jump to the. Um, I'm looking at the SRD here, which is the text that's in the Dungeon World book, and we've got parlay and the trigger. Basically, I won't read the whole move, but we've got when you have leverage on a GM character and manipulate them. So the default as- assumption in um, in dungeon world is that specifically parlay is coming into play when you're trying to get a piece npc to do what you want or like what your character wants that just simply talking to someone does not trigger parlay and the idea is that you um are have leverage like it, it have leverage isn't something that will help you it's part of the trigger so a lot of uh, gms will say it just simply being like yo give me your sword you know to a town guard that doesn't trigger parlay. Like you don't get to roll plus charisma and see if they mm-hmm. follow you because you don't have leverage. You don't have a good reason why they would do that. And I saw a conversation recently happening on the Discord of saying, is the threat of violence um, leverage in all situations? Um, and that being an interesting thing because that's the mo- the easiest one. Totally. Right? Like all these PCs have weapons. They all have damage die. They can yeah. be like, I'll kill you. Do my will. Right. right. And the threat of violence is even encoded into one of the fighter advanced moves. The uh, I believe it's called interrogator. That when you use threat of violence as your leverage, you get to roll plus strength instead of plus charisma. Right off the bat. Yeah, so suddenly the fighter can become your face because they can just order everyone around, yeah. right? Well, but then what does that fictional positioning lead to? <laughs> On a six minus, you think people are gonna are not going to immediately overthrow the tyrant ruling with an iron fist? 
Uh, yeah, the, the con- social contract is is definitely changed by that. Yeah. The, the, I, th- I think this is good. Like, this is probably meat and potatoes for a lot of people of trying to, like, connive an NPC yeah. and just doing what you want. And, like, uh, this sort of bargaining, right? This is sort of a parlay as that is given to us is sort of a haggle move, right? It's, yeah. I will do this for you or give you this if you do this for me. It's like a tit for tat type thing. Um, that's, that's pretty good. Um, but I have seen parlay expanded a little bit because it can be a little bit, um, inflexible. Like that certainly doesn't cover all sorts of interactions. And I want to run this by you, Arthur, because I've seen parlay rewritten to basically be like the ritual move. Because the ritual move is like when you want to achieve something magical, you state your goal and the, and the GM like gives you costs, right? Mm-hmm. And then you role play from there. And that's a very light framework, right? It's just a, a list of handy things to, put in front of them but as a gm that's sometimes all you need at the table you're like oh gosh like how would this thing go down and you look at this list and you're like "Ooh, uh something hard to obtain like i'll just make up an interesting mushroom they have to get and that can be like a little thing or i'll, I'll have a cost of resources they have to accumulate something but in a conversation that similar list can be really handy so here's a draft of parlay um that i saw so when you press or entice an npc into a course of action say what you want them to do or not do, and roll plus charisma. On a 10+, plus, they'll either do as you want, or the GM chooses one requirement from the list below. On a 7-9, to nine, the GM chooses one requirement or two. Um, and there's a list of requirements. But right off the bat, like when you uh, press or entice them into a course of action, that is easier to trigger than when you have leverage mm-hmm. and try to manipulate someone. Um, and so you get uh, this move becomes a little more flexible just from the trigger. And it also gives you the flexibility of, um, on a 10 plus, just simply allowing them to be won over or having them, uh, ask for that leverage. So the leverage is sort of nested in there. And then, um, similarly to ritual, it's depending on the, uh, magnitude of what they're asking for or the, the sort of like this social difficulty. You can add multiple requirements or fewer. Yeah. So, uh, here's some, here's some of those requirements. They might want a bribe, a gift, or something uh, else that they want, or a way, or at least a way to get it. A credible threat, uh, force or violence, uh, concrete assurance, evidence or corroboration, appealing to or appeasing their ego, their emotions, their honor, their conscience, their fears, something like that. A chance to do it safely, freely, discreetly. Help or participation, promise, vow, or oath from something, pressure or permission from something, or a convincing lie, trick, or deceit. So some of those things are inherently out of character, where the GM might say, like, he will do this for you, but you will have to lie convincingly, yeah. right? And that might set up another role, or it might set up them having to make a con and, like, gain the right leverage, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And some of them are simply, like, you're going to have to show him that you're worth your salt, you know? Yeah. I like that a lot. I think it's a cool twist, and I like the idea of a default basic move that leans into that sort of magical weirdness of the ritual for the wizard. But I would hesitate to replace it parlay with it outright because I think having that special move for the explicit leverage and manipulation case is worth having. A lot of times um, I see people not even roll dice in these situations because the social contract at their table is just kind of that way. Where if the GM, uh, as the as the person playing that NPC, like finds your appeal convincing um, uh, in the with an eye towards like what they perceive that NPC to like want and consider important they sometimes just like allow it based on the person's actual um out out of out of character but like 
their appeal, like how they played their character. Like if they, if they just like made a good case, so like, okay. And they don't really roll the dice. Whereas other people are like, oh, anytime we're wanting to see what happened in the world, like we need to roll the dice, which is an interesting shift. And it depends on like the, the culture, the table you're playing around. Um, a, a good thing to, that I want to ask you, Arthur, is in some games, the idea is that your out of character skills are somewhat important to how your character acts. For example, your cleverness and your ability to think of a plan or your personality and your persuasiveness is your characters. Um, whereas other people say that those that should be arbitrated by roles. And um, I find this very interesting. For example, say that there's some sort of logic puzzle or there's some kind of um, way to get through a door like a riddle. Uh, there, I, th- I guess I think a riddle is the best example. Say there's a riddle, like uh, someone poses you a riddle in character and you as a player are clever enough to figure it out. Can you just kind of say the answer and that that was you figured out Uh, or should you roll for it? Right. Like my character has an int stat. If on a successful int roll, he knows the answer to this riddle. And even if I as a player don't. What is your stance on that? Arthur? Because that comes into social situations. Yeah, absolutely. I don't like. I've done this before and it was a mistake. I don't like giving a puzzle that I'm expecting the players to solve because I'm not making a video game. Uh, Right. And I think that because we play a lot of video games as people, we go into it thinking we need to apply our personal abilities to the games that we play. But I think that the best designed encounters, if if you want to have a puzzle, that's great. But I think that the best puzzles are ones where the right solution is to spout lore a couple of times or discern realities and find the missing piece. Handle it with a role and let the players apply their cleverness and apply their narrative interest not to getting the right answer, but to getting the right path to the answer and making it something that their character would do. Um, I had a puzzle in a game that I played a while ago where the basic premise was five PCs need to stand at five places, and each of those places corresponds with that PC in some way. And I gave them a bunch of runes and said, you know, here are the runes. Each of these runes corresponds with a place. Each of you needs to stand in the right place or the door won't open. If you get it wrong, you all get hurt or uh, there was a consequence i don't remember exactly what it was but i didn't actually plan i knew what the five things i was looking for the pcs to correspond with were i didn't plan which rune corresponded with which i didn't plan on any of that and then i made the scene not about decoding the runes but about figuring out which pc corresponded with the rune for love and that sort of thing And the puzzle was a lot more fun as a result, I think, because all of the challenges were sort of thinking about your characters more deeply. And in order to get there, it was handled mechanically through the roles instead of being about like thinking back and going to a bunch of source books and and panning through them or asking the wizard what this means five times. I think some of this gets into like role playing role playing theory. Um, and the sense of it depends on what you're looking for out of the game, what will be the correct answer in a given case. Um, and at least for me, like the way to win a role playing game is just for the most interesting things to happen the most often, right? It's not just about like some optimal result happening for the characters. Uh, it's not just about getting the, the gold necessarily. Um, if that's interesting and if how that happens is interesting, that's why we want to see it. Um, so for the example of, should I roll for this or is my out of character talking all that's needed? I think the answer depends on which is going to be more interesting in a given case. For example, there might be someone who just 
um, being able to uh, talk their way out of a tense situation is not one of their strengths, right? Thinking under pressure is not one of their strengths. Like they are not going to want to um, do that in the context of the game as the deciding factor of whether something goes in their favor. Like they're going to want to look to the dice. They're going to be like, dude, my character is a better, you know, public speaker than I am. So I think we should allow the dice to speak for my character as backed up by their stats, right? And in that case, it's more interesting to go that direction. Uh, but in other cases, this character, this player has interesting things to contribute to the game that if you just abstract it with the dice would be lost. Mm, yeah. Like they, they, they have uh, things that they want, like they want to, we want to actually see what that character's speech is, right? right. Or we actually want to see what their ploy is or how they lie or what their joke is that convinces this person to yeah. give them something. And, um, and that's why I like going yeah. with the, the one, two punch of what does this look like? Okay. Now roll. Having them describe in as much specifics or as much generality as they're comfortable with exactly what their character does and then use the dice to arbitrate how well it goes is, I think, a lot more comfortable because, you know, I've played with players who will say, I bat my eyelashes suggestively as I gaze at the guard in the, you know, straight in the eyes, kind of up at an angle before I flirtatiously say, you know, X, Y, and Z. And then I've had players who would approach the same situation and say, I flirt with the guard and then jump to the role. And I think both of those are totally valid. Yeah. I just don't want the pressure to be on the player to flirt correctly or to yeah, orate exactly. correctly or to figure out the puzzle correctly, to answer a riddle correctly. But still seeing that flavor and letting the player get up and, and talk about what it looks like to an audience, you know, which is how I like to run my games in general is talk to is talk to the audience I think that's a little bit more fun. It works a little bit better for my tables. I do want to prize um, what specifically they say as being important sometimes because um, exactly how they describe themselves doing something will sometimes determine whether it is worth rolling or not mm -hmm. because there are certain plans that like are so well thought out that they aren't risky, right? And in that case, um, having them roll just because I was planning on them rolling anyway sort of almost det detracts from what they were doing, right? They're like, oh, uh, well... Did anything I say mattered if it was just going to come down to a role anyway? Um, and that encourages people to really be creative. With their it's, it's about fictional you position. Can make a situation. If you position yeah, exactly. yourself, then it triggers different moves or better moves, like moves that just are highly more advantageous for characters. But whether there's people in this situation or not, right? Yeah. That's also a great place for aid and interfere to come into play as well. Saying that my character does X, Y, and Z to help this other character is a good way to make that fictional moment for the other character more detailed without requiring them to go into that detail single-handedly. I'm going to put a bookmark here for myself to uh, bring up Aiden Interfere next time because how mechanically Aiden Interfere works, I've seen approach. Oh, yeah, that's a, that is Especially a fertile do, ground, my friend. Oh, yeah. Can you jump in and aid someone after they just rolled? Or like does it have to be before they rolled and, and such and such and such. Well, we are running a little bit long, so I think it is time for us to change gears abruptly, have a quick picture of this, and then check out some listener email. I'm all for All right. So our picture of this this week is a little bit of a walk off the beaten fantasy track. We're going to be leaving behind the highfalutin, large-scale, fantastic worlds of our Tolkien-esque fantasy and bringing things to a different scale. We're going to be talking about Blades in the Dark, specifically Blades in the Dark's core setting, Duskfall. 
a fantasy city, a steampunky fantasy city with ghosts and demons and scoundrels and soot everywhere and no sun ever. It's a very cool setting. Amen. why are we talking about it today? We're talking about it because you can run this setting in Dungeon World if you want to, um, especially if the type of game that you're going to be running is still fairly dungeon crawly, but you just want it to be in a cool, pretty, what? Uh, you know, how on earth could city. I run a fantasy game in a fantasy city like this? Well, maybe you've got a thief in your party and a bard Ooh. and um, such and such as yes. that. So. The thief and bard is a pro city combo. In my experience, you really want them to be front and center when it comes to cities so i'm with you on that for sure what's special about duskfall that makes it a compelling city for us to set our our play in so if you are in possession of the um blades in the dark core book you will learn that the game takes place in the cold foggy city of duskfall aka duskwall or the dusk it is an industrial it is industrial in its development. Imagine a world like ours during the second industrial revolution of the 1870s. Trains, steamboats, printing presses, simple electrical technology, carriages, and the black smog of chimney smoke everywhere. Duskfall is something like a mashup of Venice, London, and Prague. It's crowded with row houses, twisting streets, and crisscrossed with hundreds of little waterways and bridges. The city is also a fantasy. The world is in perpetual darkness and haunted by ghosts, a result of the cataclysm that shattered the sun and broke the gates of death a thousand years ago. The cities of the Empire are each encircled by crackling lightning towers to keep out the vengeful spirits and twisted horrors of the Deathlands. To power these massive barriers, the titanic metal ships of the Leviathan Hunters are sent out from Duskfall to extract electroplasmic blood from massive demonic terrors upon the ink-dark void sea. So you're in a haunted Victorian era city trapped inside a wall of lightning powered by demon blood. So here's what we've got. We have a city where you cannot leave because it is too dangerous. And I mean you as the general population cannot leave. You don't get to be a refugee and go someplace else. Although there are refugees in the city itself. You've also got whaling. We heard about iron-sided ships going out and hunting leviathans. For what? For their electroplasm. Well, what's electroplasm? It's electricity plus ectoplasm. It's ghosts plus science. It's fantastic as a MacGuffin, as a core technology. And then this whole setting is just riddled with opportunities to have big switches that when you throw them, it connects a circuit with exposed wires. The light sparks up and emits a cherry red glow because, of course, it's made from oxen hair rather than uh, cotton. It's a great setting. Highly, highly recommend checking out Blades in the Dark by John Harper for more and to start to think about how you can bring this to your Dungeon World game. You know, pick and choose. If you want other uh, touchstones of that, I would recommend just going on YouTube, looking up the trailers for the Dishonored uh, video yes. game series. The both, uh, whether the first one or the second one, because that'll give you a feel for what the sort of thematic flavor of this is because that's what you're trying to capture when you're porting a setting to a different game that you already know what the characters are what they're capable of um, in terms of the mechanics but if you're just looking for a way to spice it up and have not just the same old orcs you might be looking for that different flavor and ideally the easiest setting swap is one where you really don't have to have a lot of new um, mechanics for example you might say like this is victorian era but there are not guns right 
or you could treat guns the same way as you do bows ultimately like you just have the same ammo rules be at play and that sort of thing if what you're really looking for is simply a um a reskin for sure so that's picture this Duskval, the industrial city shrouded in smoke in perpetual night and so now it's time to jump to listener emails our final segment for tonight we've got one email coming at us from colin from the discord i'm gonna read that out are we wanting to oh. uh, break this into parts arthur um and have some of it uh safe for next Ooh, week i like or that are we plan. gonna try to give because there are a few a different questions in here today so with that in mind amen why don't you read out the part that we're going to address explicitly today and then we'll save the rest for next time okay so the 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 title of the email was niche protection, and that's the sort of core question I want to talk about specifically. I'll briskly go through the question as presented in the email. Um, Hobbitmeister, um, uh, aka Colin, um, is saying here, Hello, I had a question for you regarding niche protection in your games. Based off a conversation I had in the Discord last night, thought it might be an interesting topic. The rules of Dungeon World state that you are the wizard, the fighter, the cleric, etc. You are the important one. You are special for that reason. Personally, I'm on the fence about that statement. I want the players to be the focus. I want them to be the ones that are the spotlight focuses on. However, I do not think that just because you chose the Thief playbook or the Paladin playbook, you just stick to niche stereotypes. He says he plays in a play-by-post play game that he uh, that he was in over a year ago, and he chose the Thief, but the character was an elven assassin who used a bow as his main weapon and never really stole anything, per se. I chose Thief because its moves fit the assassin idea the best. Poison, backstabbing, stealth, and connections. Later, he played it in a game where someone played a paladin, but as more of a traditional monk character. He says, I like to play a class like a fighter and use the multi-class moves to take spellcasting or similar moves to create more of a spell sword than a traditional fighter. The question of niche protection comes up when you take a character like my assassin thief, who by his backstory and playstyle is the master of the bow, and then say that the ranger automatically beats him in archery contest because they are the ranger. I just wonder if sometimes the playbook takes precedence in some GM's minds over the character. What if the ranger doesn't use her bow that often, opting to use her magical flaming longsword more? And then he gives some examples of games where he saw fighters with bows or rangers with swords and heresy like that. Um, in, in, in my mind, uh, Arthur, I don't know about you, but this idea that no one else in the world is exactly like you, I tend to not push that hard in my games. I know that that is pretty, um, that is one of Dungeon World's core assumptions is that, uh, the playbooks are archetypes because mm -hmm. you are like the yeah. ultimate idea of that. I archetype. do the opposite. For example, if, if I, you're a wizard. I push the, I push that incredibly hard in my games. I make it clear that they are special. In fact, I go so far as to say there aren't other wizards in the world if there's a wizard in the party. There are sorcerers, there are mages. There are spellcasters, but there's only one wizard, and it's you, Speculees. Yeah, that's and and that's certainly something in which uh, the con the topic of niche protection needs to come up. Of uh, not just does your playbook choice conflict with someone else's, which is a question of its own. Like for example, I I, I highly doubt Arthur that you would allow uh, two people to play the same playbook in the same session, Correct, right? Yes. Like not two fighters at the table, right? Um, and which I think is um pretty good practice for 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 dungeon world mm -hmm. um but um additionally character concepts right if your character is a master swordsman and this ranger 
he's also a master swordsman, right? Like maybe the fighter and the ranger, they both have master swordsman is their sort of idea. Mm-hmm. You can kind of talk to them about like who is going to be um, coming into the fictional spotlight in the same situations is going to bump up, bump up against each other a lot. And maybe like differentiating those characters in a meaningful way somehow right. is in play. I, so speaking of differentiation, yeah. I think I want to specifically address the question of who wins, the assassin thief who's really good with the longbow or the ranger by default because they're the ranger. And I think my answer for that comes down to having that conversation with the players in advance of that question coming up. The question I would ask in that situation is not, well, who's naturally better at the longbow? It's, you know, what are the situations in which our assassin thief is using the longbow? Is it tracking a quick moving target like small game? No, it's typically from a place of power, from a place of advantage taking one extremely well-placed shot against a person, probably a slow-moving person who's unaware of the danger that they're in. That's a very different skill. So the archery competition that we talked about in the in this email doesn't necessarily have to break one way or the other based purely on their playbook. It's about the situation. It's about the fictional positioning. And that's what's important, is that we don't have two characters that are trying to be the to be the same in terms of a particular fictional position because i think that's when the spotlight gets muddy that's when we have this conflict between two players and then in the example you gave earlier with the two master swordsmen well why are two master swordsmen in the same party are they both here because they are trying to figure out who's better that's a pretty cool arc to have pretty cool bond to form. yeah that's built-in tension interesting tension yeah just because your fighter has sort of the fighting niche and but also your ranger is an equally good swordsman doesn't necessarily mean that they're you know stepping on each other's niches after all the fighter has a much bigger niche than just good at sword the fighter is the big person, the person who clearly is ready for a brawl at all times, the person who can take a chair, smash it over their knee and make a weapon out of it as easily as they can out of their glowing longsword. The ranger? The ranger's sword serves them in the forest, where the trees are as much cover as they are concealment. It's not about... It's it's just a different fictional position. So I think that niche protection... Niche protection shouldn't just be protecting the core thing of the character. It should be about where do we point the spotlight when something comes up? Well, we need to make sure that the thing that comes up lets us point the spotlight at a particular person. So as the GM, I think it's on you to make sure that if two players have an overlap, that you make sure to highlight the things that are outside of that overlap in the Venn diagram of what those characters are about. Or when you present something that is an opportunity for both of them, you make it clear this is an opportunity for both of you, and I think that's interesting, and I've given you an interesting way for it to work. So it's up to the GM. It's important for the GM to to really put thought and effort into that, rather than just deferring to, well, well the ranger's better with the bow, which I think is not, it's not the most interesting option that you have. Yeah, that's taking it a bit far, like the stereotypes. Um, I think that it is important to recognize that there are stereotypes built into Dungeon World, and that's okay. I mean, one of the goals of Dungeon World is to just make playing the, I, the culturally, um, the culturally prominent idea of fantasy role playing just easy to do, right? Like we all have this idea of how D and D goes. Um, the idea is that Dungeon World lets you play D and D easily, right? So some of the character creation work is done for you by the playbooks. Like when you, the ranger already has a bunch of text on that sheet to make a good 
cool archer dude who has an animal buddy, right? Um, and if you are trying to subvert it so hard that the playbook is no longer supporting you, then the question is, one, why are you still playing that playbook? And two, why are you still playing Dungeon World? Like, maybe you might be served better by something else if you're really breaking from that stereotype so much. Um, or at, at least look for a third-party playbook that is written a little bit differently. Um, yeah. Because the playbooks present a certain idea of what is a ranger, and um, the best, uh, I think, the, the art of Dungeon World, and to not have it go so far that it's just samey and simply knowing that someone's a ranger is all you have to know about them, is just the art of the subtle spin. Like, what's the what's the, the catch or the gimmick um, of this ranger, you know, or of this druid, or this fighter? Sure. And sometimes simply swapping the weapon's cool. Like, the fact that your ranger isn't using a bow where most of them do is sometimes enough to make that character interesting. Like just answering that question of why that is. Yeah, for sure. Now we'll cover the rest of this email next week and talk a little bit about things that playbooks just give PCs and more. But for now, I think that's going to do it for us here on Play to Find Out, the Dungeon World podcast from the Dungeon World Discord. Once again, I've been Arthur or Art Projects, one of your co-hosts. I've been Eamon or Voidlet, your other co-hosts. And here's our um, mandatory weekly reminder that if you want to hit us up, you can email us. Our email will be in the description. You can tweet at us. Our Twitter will also be in the description. Thank you so much, and see you next time. On Play to Find Out. <laughs>